Hello there. Hello there, everybody. Uh, this is Glenn Lowry, Brown University, uh, host of The Glenn Show at uh, Substack and uh, also at my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show. I'm with Daniel Besner. He is assistant professor. Associate. At, I am tenured. Oh, he is. I beg your pardon. <laughs> Daniel is associate professor. Congratulations, Daniel. Thank you. Uh, at the Henry Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. And uh, has been a frequent guest in the past on the Glenn Show, although I think it's been about a year or so since Daniel last appeared. Uh, Daniel uh, heroically volunteered to interview me in a series of posts, which you guys can still find. I think there are four of them from uh, 10, 12 months ago. Uh, to help me get my still-in-progress memoir in hand, although uh, my interviews with Daniel were very helpful. So he's back. Daniel writes for The Nation and other places. Where else do you write for, Daniel? Uh, I write for The Nation. I've written for The Times, Washington Post, Guardian. Uh, I'm a contributing editor at socialist magazine Jacobin. And most important for podcast listeners, I'm a co-host of a podcast called American Prestige Foreign Affairs Podcast heterodox analysis, to say the least. I think it's fair to say that Daniel is coming from the left of the center aisle in American politics as he takes his approach to some of these critical issues. And he and I have gone back and forth in that spirit uh, in the past. Um, I'd be very curious to know what you're thinking about foreign affairs going on just now. But I have first to tell you, Daniel, that my wife caught you as a guest on Chapo Trap House. Oh, your she wife's a Chapo listener. What you had to say. Huh? That's great. Your I, I, yeah. your wife's a Chapo listener. That's great. My <laughs> wife is a Chapo listener amongst uh, I don't know maybe a dozen other uh, periodical podcast uh, stuff that goes on, and uh, is you know she's a Bernie Sanders uh, uh, Democrat and you know actually I'm sorry Bernie Sanders progressive she'd be furious. <laughs> if she heard me call her a Democrat. <laughs> oh, I'm 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 with I'm with your wife. I'm with your wife. That's so funny that she listens to Chapo. And I'm glad she liked uh she liked the appearance. It's uh, I always like going on them. It's a fun it's a fun show. You are in foreign affairs there, foreign studies, international studies at the University of Washington, and I want to know what's up with uh the um uh, uh hysteria, is it? <laughs> I think that's a fair I think that's a fair word. Because I think that oftentimes in this country there is an impulse to to do what I call play risk, right? Since 1945 when the United States said we're going to be the superpower and especially since 1989 when that became a feasible position with the end of the Cold War and then in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union Americans, and I include myself um, among this population, basically look at the world and like feel that they have the right and ability <laughs> And duty even to, to make decisions, right, about like what goes on in Ukraine. Um, and I think this is important because I think this reflects an assumption of American military and economic primacy, the idea that the United States should have this sort of global power and should decide, for example, what happens in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia. Um, but I think what we're seeing here, uh, and I think what, what Putin's uh, action shows, is that there's a, a relative decline in American power worldwide. I don't think a, a Russia would have attempted this in 1995, uh, even like in 2002, 2003. 
maybe even later because Ukraine is so far west when you're looking at Russia um, as compared to Georgia. Um, but what this shows is that there are now going to be challenges. Now there are going to be regional powers who are going to be challenging American global hegemony um, because clearly this is not in what the United States policy elite wants. So I think this is an important time to basically question the very assumption of primacy that you know pretty much everyone listening today uh, grew grew up with and, and was born into. Everyone born after 1945 or really after 1940. Um, when this decision was made. Uh, I think that the decision was made actually in the summer of 1940 after the fall of France. Um, this is the work of Stephen Wartime in his book, Tomorrow the World. And Americans are like, whoa, th there could be the another decision power. Was made, the decision was made to arrogate to ourselves a role of primacy and the management of global affairs. Right. Is, is that right. what you refer to? Right. Because you... Decision? Exactly. The decision, I would call it for primacy, right? The United States has always been an expansionist power. You start with the colonies, you head west, you have indigenous genocide, you have occupation, settler colonialism, blah, blah, blah. Not blah, 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 but like just a, there's a lot there. I'm just going to go over the story uh, quickly. Then you have in 1823, the Declaration of the Monroe Doctrine, which is we're going to control the Western Hemisphere. You have in 1898, the seizure of colonies in the Philippines and Puerto Rico. Um, today, of course, the U.S. has five colonies. And then in 1945, you have basically the U.S. saying the globe is our area. It doesn't really become a reality, I don't think, until after the end of the Cold War, but the decision for primacy is made. But what we're seeing now with the so-called rise of China and you know Russian uh, uh, revanchism, whatever you want to call it, is that so-called rise of China. Yeah. Well, I just don't think China has global ambitions like the United States does. I think like the truly global ambition is kind of an American pathology. I don't think even if let's say China was in the US position in 1945, it doesn't seem to me like they necessarily would have built, you know, the 750 overseas military bases, et cetera, et cetera. I think they want regional hegemony. Um, I don't think they want genuinely global hegemony like the United States has. So that's what I mean by so-called rise. Of course, China has risen. It's developed, particularly in its region, et cetera. But I don't think it has truly global ambitions. Um, I think what Americans do is they actually impute our global ambitions onto other powers. Um, and we could get into why I think that. But I think the United States, partially due to its universalist Protestant heritage, has like a particular global vision of its power and sort of bringing the city on a hill to the rest of the world uh, that other nation states don't quite have, at least in my opinion. When, when you refer to the United States, who are you talking about? Is it a cultural, is it a political, you know, is, is it the way that college students are educated to think about their country? Uh, is it a set of uh, interests like military industrial complex or whatever? Uh, is it ideological? I mean, what, what are you talking about when you say the U.S. has these? And, and by the way, these things are presumed to be bad by your tone of voice, is it clear that uh, having the ambition to influence developments around the world on behalf of a set of ideas or ideals is necessarily a bad thing? Well, uh, I'll, I'll actually take the last question first, and then I'll go back. I, I mean, for this, like, I point, I just point to the history. Um, the United States ha has had uh, has acted brutally across the world, and and you know that my my philosophical position is as a humanist, you know, I'm not a nationalist, even though I understand that the nation state is an important container. I think every human life is equal uh, and that every human life should be taken, you know, seriously, is philosophically equal. 
Uh, and oftentimes when the United States tries to intervene abroad, it has disastrous consequences. And, and so look at the historian uh, Paul Chamberlain, his book, um, I think it's called Rethinking the Cold War's Killing Fields, Rethinking the Long Peace. And he shows that the Cold War, which I think ultimately was mostly, not totally, but mostly an American-driven project. I think that the Soviet Union didn't really want to fight a Cold War. It was not nearly as powerful as the United States. It was not nearly as developed. It was not nearly as rich uh, and couldn't quite afford to fight the Cold War. And I think it was <laughs> fighting the Cold War actually led to its internal collapse. It didn't really want to fight it. Um, but I think that the Cold War, you know, he shows had between 20 and 25 million deaths. The political scientist Lindsay O'Rourke in her book Covert Regime Change showed that the United States tried to covertly overthrow regimes 66 times. It succeeded 25 times, but even when it didn't succeed, it engendered authoritarian outcomes You know, around the world. We could do the doxology at this point, Iran, Guatemala, Chile, uh, Indonesia, you know, the Congo, uh, Lebanon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I just think if you look at the history, it's, it's not a project that has done particular good for the world. Then if you want to well, get well, meta- Well, pardon my naivete, pardon my, were the influence of the Soviet Union to have prevailed in these various places their people would be better off, you claim? I don't think that was a possibility. I don't think the Soviet Union was rich enough or had designs like that in the same way. The United States was uniquely powerful after World War II. It, ha it had the capacity to do these things. So the Soviet Union did intervene. I'm not, I'm not like saying they didn't by any stretch of the imagination. But from this perspective in 2022, we could just see the United States was way more powerful than the Soviet Union and had way more capacity to shape world affairs, um, in, my, in my opinion. And also, I think, but, I, but I, I'm confused now. It, if the U.S. had employed that power advantage on behalf of its uh, global agenda, I, I'm taking it that you think that's not a good thing. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to get you to um, come to grips with the fact that there were ideas behind these different uh, powers that seem to have had different consequences for the prosperity and the security and the liberty of the people in the, in the places that uh, where the U.S. and the Soviet Union were coming into conflict. I mean, it, I, forgive me again for my naivete. It's just hard for me to imagine the, that, that the Soviet Union prevailing or its allies and, uh, uh, you know, uh, clients, uh, that that would have fostered economic development to a greater extent or it would have led to uh, a greater degree of human freedom than is currently being enjoyed by people in these places where the U.S. has had influence. Well, I guess it depends now. <laughs> I'm doing a, a sort of a, a edited volume on Cold War liberalism terms, which would be by freedom. <laughs> you know, uh, free, you know, <laughs> negative liberty, positive liberty. You know, if the choices between having freedom of speech or you know freedom from homelessness, what would someone take? I mean, these are different definitions, right? So, so it's an. Uh, Wherever, how you come down on that question ultimately comes down to your ideological predilections. Do you, do you think positive liberty is more important? Do you think negative liberty is more important? Do you think development is innately good? Uh, the, the, the planet might have uh, something to say about that, you know? And so I think these are difficult questions and how we interpret them will change as we see what happens. You know, if there's, if we reach whatever wet bulb five degrees or whatever it's called, then we'll say, you know what, maybe U.S. consumptive patterns weren't the best thing for humanity as a whole. So I think these things are ever changing. Um, so that's okay. where I would answer that, you know. Uh, I, but I would also just say I don't think the Soviet Union had the capacity to be what the United States was. 
I just don't think it, it had the power and, and the ability to do that. It wasn't as developed. You know, it was a peasant society that very, very, very rapidly industrialized with enormous human consequences, very negative human consequences. Whereas the United States in 1945 controlled 50% of world manufacturing. You know, it just, they're not comparable. Um, even though the Soviet Union had lots of people, particularly when you're stationed, uh, when you're thinking about Europe, uh, I, I think Eisenhower was right. <laughs> I think nuclear weapons mitigated a lot of that, that advantage. Um, so I think there was the U.S. was in a unique position um, after World War II to be a truly global power in a way that the Soviet Union wasn't. And whether that was good or bad for people, I think it depends on what you're, where you're, where you're ideologically standing. Um, essentially, and the nuclear standoff, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, mutual assured destruction. That's where, bad. Was, was that a figment of my imagination as well? Growing up as a boy in the post World War II era, where there was a lot of concern about the threat posed by a nuclear. No, no, absolutely not. That was absolutely not a figment of your imagination. But then they share equal responsibility there. I mean, that's the U.S. and Soviet Union. Um, <laughs> you could imagine a world maybe. I'm, I'm specifically writing about the year 1946, and there are genuine, you know, attempts to have international control of atomic weaponry. There was a famous book called One World or None, where like the head of the Air Force. Has an, as uh, General Hap Arnold has an essay where he's like, we need to control, you know, everyone needs to control these things. But that ended pretty quickly. No, I, I mean, I assign equal responsibility for that. Absolutely. I do think that the Cold War could have ended earlier if not for the United States. So I guess ultimately then I assign the United States more responsibility. But yeah, no, the Soviet Union was a nuclear power and it absolutely sought nuclear weapons um, and it absolutely, you know, might have used them in certain circumstances. I, I don't deny that at all. Now, what about the Western Europeans, uh, our NATO allies who were concerned about the quote-unquote threat posed by the Soviet Union? Was that a figment of their imaginations as well? I don't think the Soviet Union was ever going to invade Western Europe. Um, I mean, I don't think they could have known that in 1945, so uh, or when NATO was founded, I believe, in 49. Um, so, I mean, I don't begrudge them that. You, you know, it's it uh, that was a really f uh, freaky 30 years with World War One, then followed by World War Two. Massive human destruction, massive population movements. Um, but I think I, I think it's fair to say now uh, we have a pretty good sense that that was never really in the cards for the Soviet Union to invade France or to invade Britain, um, particularly the fact that the U.S. had a nuclear monopoly for four years and was able to uh, essentially stabilize those regimes through Marshall Plan aid and things like that. Um, so, but, you know, uh, when I'm looking at the time, you couldn't have known that necessarily, but I think it's absurd that NATO continues to exist today. You know, why was NATO founded to keep the Americans in the Soviets out and the Germans down? <laughs> None of those things uh, really hold any longer. Europe is very, very rich. And why is the U S footing any of their uh, defense bill? To me, it's wild to me. That should be like a cross ideological position. Why the hell is the U S paying for so much of European defense? Donald Trump on behalf of your position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this. I think you hear it more and more across across the political spectrum um, that Europe is very rich, and I would say, like, as an ontological position, the people in a region are more better, are are more able to decide what's good for their region than an exogenous power sort of coming in and calling the shots to a significant degree. But um, for the American taxpayer, why is the American taxpayer footing any of NATO's bills? Does France really need that? Does, does Britain really need that? Does Germany really need that? These are powerful, rich countries. Why are we paying for their defense? Why are we even? Why do we even have a say over their defense? But you'll notice Trump might have said that, but he didn't do a damn thing about NATO. So you know, whatever he, what he might have said, it doesn't really matter. 
Okay, but we were talking about Ukraine, and I threw you off track. Okay. You were making the point that the U.S. has a, an expansionist uh, vision about its role in the world, uh, a global, uh, uh, you know, taking care of it. It's, everything is in our backyard. We really care about the status of Taiwan. Right. Why, like, we, precisely. And, and I mean, you know, that's another example. Well, but this you know, is so. This is what I would say. I don't think we really do care. So this is, I think, the problem. Right. I think there's there's like this inertial position. I don't think if the PRC and, and I there are going to be experts who say, well, they can't do this. The weapons. I'm just saying philosophically, if the PRC invaded Taiwan, I do not think the United States would fight World War Three over it. I do not think that that is that is what will happen, just like I don't think the United States would fight a World War Three over Ukraine, as we're seeing right now. So what I actually fear um, well, not really fear. That might not be the right word. But I think that in the next 15, 20 years, we're not going to do things like re-examine the assumption of primacy. Um, China might do something dramatic with Taiwan. The United States will then just retreat and actually leave our allies um, unprepared to deal with what's actually happening in that region, which is the rise of Chinese regional hegemony. Um, I th don't think that's necessarily um, without value judgments, whether that's good or whether that's bad. That seems to be a reality that is going to happen in the next 15, 20, 25, 30 years, whenever. So the United I States, you dropped the, you dropped the so-called modifier there. Well, when we're talking about regional, yeah, regional, okay. it's factual. When we're Got talking it. about global, it's, it's not. Got it. And I think it's framed globally. Um, in the media and places like China's going to uh, get into Latin America. They've, they've made some moves, but China's not going to expand to the Western Hemisphere. That's not a goal of the People's Republic of China or the Chinese Communist Party. I think it's absurd to say that. But in the region, they want regional hegemony, which they had for you know a, a long time. Um, so I think that what U.S. policy elites need to do is need to be examining this new reality and actually preparing for it and preparing South Korea, Japan, other regional allies for what is going to be a changing regional geostrategic structure. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I think that there'll be dr some dramatic event and the U.S. will just like not totally cut and run, but will do what's in its interest, which is not to fight World War III uh, with a Chinese regional hegemon. And so I just think our foreign policy discourse is very, um, wh whatever the opposite of elevated is. <laughs> so we're bluffing. Yeah. And that's what Putin's basically doing. I think what Putin's showing the world is that U.S. relative power is declining, um, that the United States is not going to, you know, go to war over Ukraine or go, for, go to war over another power, redrawing international boundaries. And of course, the ironic thing is Putin loves referring to Kosovo and how the United States essentially did that with regards to Serbia in the 1990s. He's like, see, I'm showing, I could also redraw the international uh, boundaries. You know, you thought it was only you, but Russia is a great power. We're not just a middle power, we're a great power. And I think that's what Putin's really trying to do here. So am I wrong to be terrified? Yes. At the prospect <laughs> that somebody... I don't think Joseph Biden is necessarily that somebody, but what do I know? And, you know, when they call your bluff and you turn the table over. Like you know, Biden you, will do something dramatic. Yeah. And it, as, as a way of, uh, you know, I'm tough. I'm, I'm not going to be pushed around. We're, we're the United fucking States of America. And, and, you know, we we stand for the uh, you know security of 
recognition of sovereign borders, uh, democracy, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, get us into a conflict that uh, we'll regret uh, down the road. Uh, I don't see that happening. Of course, it's always a possibility. Um, you know, Biden Biden could theoretically do something like that, um, especially because Congress doesn't have to <laughs> declare war anymore, even though the Constitution says that. But I, I, I find it hard to see right now because there's so little U.S. interest in what's happening there. there there's no real U.S. interest there. Um, it could happen. You know, this is this is this is the problem with events like this. Uh, it's not impossible, okay. but I don't I don't think that's likely. So rather than a, a, a vain uh, flailing conflict, uh, you see a loss of credibility um, and uh, the subsequent uh, unraveling of trust in our uh commitments by allies not necessarily because i think i i bet most world leaders know like who the u.s's like major allies really are and who they aren't you know world leaders aren't foolish for the most part uh the the u.s might do something with regards western europe um with israel saudi arabia right now um but it's not like it's going to fight in eastern europe so i don't think there's a real loss in u.s credibility um, the the loss in credibility is just the last twenty years of American history, uh, with Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, et cetera, et cetera. What what is dangerous to me about Ukraine is that um, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons, um, and I think this yeah. thirty years ago, and I think this suggests to international powers like never ever give up your nuclear weapons, particularly after Gaddafi. Gaddafi also gave up his nuclear so program. Gaddafi, yeah. yeah, and look what happened to him. So I think if we're talking, talking macro, that is the, the most problematic thing. This is this suggests that pr uh, proliferation is a good um, it, it is what you should do as a state. Like if you don't have nuclear weapons, then you don't have a deterrent. Um, so that to me is the most frightening thing about this particular event when we're talking globally. But I don't think there's going to be a, a American troops sent to Ukraine. There's not. Um, categorically, there will not be American you know boots on the ground. They might send weapons. They might send quote unquote advisors, which I guess are boots on the ground. But I don't think we'll see something like Iraq there. All right. Shocked. Now, I'm trying to think, I think of Matt Taibbi, a journalist who writes in the spirit that you are giving voice to uh, about, uh, about the Ukraine uh, crisis. But the mainstream media, not so much. Yeah, because they have the assumption of primacy. I mean, like the average writer at the New York Times thinks it's God's right given right to the United States to govern the entire world now and forever. They don't even know. It's like the water they swim in. It's the air they breathe. They don't even know that's what they think. But that's what they think. Uh, and that's, I think, extraordinarily problematic. And it wasn't always the case. You know, if you went to the 30s, the, the Times does not believe that. It's a post-World War II uh, thing, and it's a post-Cold War thing especially, you know, uh, the, the the end of history moment the unilateral uh, the unilateral moment we're we're still living in that ideologically even if the power realities on the ground suggest otherwise. All right, Primer on Ukraine from Daniel Besner. I, I apologize to the hawks out there in the audience who want me to wave the flag here. I'm I'm not in a position to do so because I don't have a knowledge base sufficient, and and I'm frankly uh, intrigued. By Daniel's outlook and think it needs to be taken seriously. What else we want to talk about, Daniel? You mentioned Whoopi Goldberg <laughs> to, to change the subject. An equally um, important event in world history. <laughs> um, 
what do you make of the controversy? You're Jewish, as I understand. I don't know if that what gives it away. The way in which you, <laughs> <laughs> affects the way in which you read the Whoopi Goldberg uh, phenomenon. But what do you make of it? Well, to me, it was so interesting that um, people got so upset about it because it seemed to me very obvious what was happening. She was basically using the American liberal paradigm of what race is, which is based essentially yeah. on phenotype, and applying it to a context where that didn't make it wasn't accurate. You know, I think it was as simple as that. Um, and I think it was it was absurd that people got so upset about it. And 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 what was so frustrating is that I don't know if you saw her her, you know, going on Colbert, but her, it was interesting. She didn't. I did not. Uh, so basically she's like, okay, I just won't talk about it anymore. <laughs> you know, that was her conclusion. She's like, she, she didn't apologize. And, and, and I don't think that she needed to apologize. I think a public apology is not really an apology. Uh, you know, that's not how apologies function. What are you applying, uh, apologizing to the public? Like, what the hell are you talking it's about? It's not an apology. Yeah, it's a performance. It's a, it's a political communication in some sense. Yeah. Um, but it was such an easy thing to th uh, to see through, and it just sh showed how like degraded our political discourse has become. Because that's actually an interesting thing, you know. Race doesn't function in every society at all historical moments in the same way, right? That 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 is provided a learning opportunity for what you could you talk about, you know. In in 1941, um, Germany or really Poland, you know, to be a Jew was not to be white in the sense that you meant it. Also, one could say sure. that's true of the United States. In 1935, right. being a Jew wasn't, you weren't quite white. Uh, and this right. is what's interesting about whiteness as a phenomenon, right? How it gets sort of collapsed into phenotype. But I just thought it was, it was pretty, pretty, um, I don't want to use too strong a word, but I was, I was going for, let's just say sad. It was sad that she had to take this, that, that they had to put her on blast and that they had to basically, they suspended her. Right. And it was just such a such an instantiation of how low our discourse is when this one was so obvious what was happening. Um, and what was interesting uh, to me is that it, it sort of reflected the tensions of, of contemporary liberal discussions about race, where it's both at one hand totally constructed, but also really real. Right. And so this is it was, I think, reflected in her belief where she's like, well, Jews are white. So in across all time and space that they're white. Uh, and I think that it, it's sad that we couldn't actually have a more sophisticated discussion as like a demos about what was actually happening there. That's interesting to me. I mean, I read her as just being ignorant, you know, and uh, the reaction to her was as if she were venal. She, she was put in the stocks for a moral offense when in fact she just didn't know European history very well. Right, right. And then she was applying what is the racial discourse in the United States to a different context. That's literally all it was. It was so obvious to see and would have taken five minutes of someone just explaining that and she would be like, oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's not a particularly difficult concept to understand, but the fact that people just went for the, the jugular immediately is just such a sad reflection. And, and just, I think it's a reflection of like the anger of our, of our country right now. Like people are angry uh, and they're pissed off and they, they're just looking for heads. And I think that's mostly what cancel culture is. I think we had an earlier discussion where I think when we're talking about elite spaces like the Times, it's mostly a way to like basically fire older people who you, you, you want to advance past. Uh, I think it's 99% that. <laughs> Um, but on the, on the public scale, I think it just reflects people being angry and they, they want to like make other people suffer. And that's a sign of an unhealthy society that capitalism necessarily has wrought. <laughs>
Let's explore that last for a minute. <laughs> I know. Capitalism I just, I just is responsible for cancel culture. Really? Uh, well, I think that the <laughs> inequalities of our society engender a culture like that. Um, I think um, when people feel that they don't have actual... So I've recently wrote a piece, you might find this interesting, called The End of Mass Politics. And, and it, it was a little bit of a think piece. But what I think is happening right now is that we live in a world where there's the appearance of mass institutions. There's the appearance of large-scale political parties. We have a mass media. We have social media. So in, on one hand, we live in a moment where the ordinary person feels like they have the ability to really ex express a political opinion, right? You're able to go on Twitter and tweet something or Facebook, blah, 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 blah. But I think when you look at how power actually functions, it's relatively cloistered, like foreign policy right now. What the public thinks about foreign policy, it's going to have almost no effect on what decisions that elites make. What the public thinks about macroeconomic policy is going to have no effect on what elites think. The public wants basically uh, nationalized health care. That has had no effect. The public wants whatever, free pre-K or free childcare. That has no effect. So on one hand, you have the appearance of a mass politics without the actual um, uh, ability to affect politics itself. And I think that's driving people insane. And I think that reflects a lot of our political discourse. So I think we actually live in a post-mass age, right? We have the institutions of the 1920s, but we don't have the ability to affect things like we did in the 1920s and the 1930s. And I think this really has engendered a disconnect within people's psyche about how they experience politics. And that's one of the many, many reasons that people are super mad. And I could explain that if that was unclear, but I think mass politics is no longer actually a thing, even if it appears like it is. I'm not sure why that's bad. Uh, I'm not sure why the public should get everything it wants. Um, I can see mass delirium. I can see moral panic. I, I can... I think maybe a system that makes it hard for the demos to assert itself might be a wise system, <laughs> even if not always a just system. Uh, so I, I you're think a progressive. Slow to change. We should be slow to change fundamental institutions, and, and you know. I, well, so. so what's interesting? I think your position combines in, in, interesting. It's it's a very post World War II position, which is on one hand you're a capital P progressive which is you think the experts should rule. That was a progressive movement, right? We don't want Tammany Hall. We want the social scientists. But on the other hand, there's a, this sort of like post-World War II conservatism, which is like the institutions are good. The institutions built by the progressives, I might add. The institutions are good, and we don't, and we don't want to change them. So it's a very sort of combination of positions. What I would say is, again, I'm a historian. You look to history. The experts have fucked up time and time again. I don't think the demos could get it uh, any worse. And I think it might actually lead to some sort of dialectic where there's a position that's better between expertise and the public. I don't want to get rid of the experts. I think that's foolish. I think the Lippmann critique in some sense is correct. You can't be an omnicompetent citizen, right? Society is way too complex for every individual to have an opinion about everything. You need experts. This is you Walter Lippmann, public opinion. Yes, public opinion, exactly. And the phantom public. 1922 and 1925, debate between John Dewey in the 20s. Dewey wrote two reviews in the New Republic, and he also wrote uh, The Public and Its Problems. Um, but uh, so it's interesting. I write about it in my book. But um, so I think there's an insight there, right? But the problem is you could argue that in the 20s, but the last hundred years have shown that experts have, you know, 
repeatedly messed things up in, in a lot of ways. I know foreign policy the best, but I don't think like a hyper unequal society like we have today suggests that the economic experts are also getting things right all the time. So I think that does suggest that public opinion, particularly an enlightened public opinion, you know, a, a, an educated public opinion could serve a useful function in a democratic polity. I, I think that is something that we've really abandoned. Um, and it's one of the reasons why people feel so angry today and so disconnected from politics. And one of the reasons why you vote for someone like Donald Trump, which is just to grenade the system effectively. So you think in the 20s and 30s, the uh, leverage that uh, mass opinion had over uh, national policy was greater. And what, 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 you know, what's the evidence for that? Well, I think a couple of things. The American state doesn't become the American state we know and love today until World War II. So there's a much, much weaker state in the 1920s yeah. and the 1930s. So, so as this state is being formed, I think you see policymakers at the time actually taking public opinion far more seriously. And I think you just see that in the New Deal. You know, we haven't really had a New Deal-like social program in almost 100 years. And I think one of the reasons that Roosevelt did that was to save capitalism from the critique that was coming from the left, but also from the public at large. The labor strikes, you know, the unemployment lines, the um, the search for jobs in a newly industrialized or really, yeah, I guess it's industrialized, but an industrialized society. And so you have a responsive government. But what happens after World War II is you have the formation of an American state that is so complex and so unique, and I think most importantly, um, public and private. You know, the American state very much outsources a lot of its functions to private corporations. Like, for example, one could imagine a world in which it's this, the, the government's function to make weapons so that you remove capitalist incentives from war, but we don't have that system. We have private military contractors, et cetera, which are essentially, that's a government function. I think, you know, building of weapons for national defense is, is potentially a government function. They also get so much of their money from the government. You have the creation of think tanks which is essentially they're creating policy outside the government, funded by the government. So you have the establishment of a state that is uniquely public and private and very difficult for the ordinary person to affect or even get a hold on. You know, So when I was advising the Bernie campaign, right, we were asked, like, what would happen on day one? I'm like, we need task forces to see how this, like, this Leviathan actually functions. And I think that the complexity of the American state makes it very difficult for ordinary people to have a sense of what's going on or to affect what's going on. Okay, now you're venturing into territory that I have some familiar familiarity with, you know, privatization, uh, the the decision about whether or not you should employ people to pick up the garbage, or you should contract with the garbage, if you're the city of Philadelphia, or you should contract with a garbage collection concern. Uh, the decision about whether if you want children to be educated, you should do it with public employees through. Uh, large scale thing, or you should allow a thousand flowers to bloom and let people make their own decisions. And there are some guidelines uh, in uh, economic logic about, you know, how you want that boundary to be drawn based on, you know, the incentives, the information, the structures of competition, and uh, so on and so forth. I mean, if I have large public employee unions that capture the delivery of services, I may not have the same degree of ability to influence the delivery of those services on behalf of consumers, et cetera, et cetera. There might be some kinds of economies of scale or scope where I, I don't think the government is capable of 
uh, doing, you know, I wouldn't want research laboratories all to be run by the federal government, for example. I'm, I'm thinking that there might be some value in, uh, anyway. But why research laboratories? The greatest, the greatest advancements in technology occurred during World War II, when basically the government centralized everyone at the MIT Radiation Laboratory or at the Manhattan Project. Well, I'm, I'm not against public research laboratories. <laughs> I'm against the public monopolization of research within those laboratories. I, I want to see university research-based research enterprises. I want to see uh, private sector-based research enterprises working on stuff. I, you know. Yeah, but that's it, it's, van, it's van more of our an intuition Bush. than it. Pardon? Yeah. That's the Vannevar Bush position. That's why big science took the uh, took it did because he Vannevar Bush. It was this uh, very important MIT guy headed the Office of Scientific uh, and Research and Development during World War II, the OSRD. That was his position, and he was very influential. And he's like, we need big science, which is funded by the government, but has these sorts of locations around the country. And I think there's still been plenty of capture, but. Uh, but that 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 is a story for uh, another day. But no, I think I, I mean I think that that's a useful useful thing. And then you just look to history and, and look what what actually happens. Um, and then I think that that has to take your guide. And I I, I don't think that's resulted in in great great advances of, of human uh, to use the term popular today human capital. Um, I I think public schooling isn't that great in this country. Um, I think that the capture of universities by neoliberal corporatism uh, isn't the greatest thing in the world. How can um, you say public schooling is great when I'm looking at the disastrous effects of... I said it isn't, isn't great. Oh, you said it's not great. Yeah, yeah, because it's based on property taxes. You know, like we created oh, oh, okay, a system. Okay, okay, you should yeah, yeah. spell that out a little bit more. I, I misunderstood yeah, yeah. you. Sorry, yeah, no, no, because I think I, like it, it, hasn't, it hasn't gotten great but, but because we've had these like mixed structures where instead of doing like blanket... Uh, funding we base it on property taxes, so the rich people get the good education and the poor people get the bad education. And I think this is what happens ultimately in a capitalist system. I, I mean, I think the market is 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 a tool that has been overused in this particular social structure for the last sixty years. But we're talking about years. public education. Yeah, but they it marketized public education. I mean, it, it's part it, the logic is could still be a market even if it's technically public. I mean how it funds what would taxes. you do I'm, I'm really i'm literally curious i i'll declare that i am a pro educational choice guy my my gut instinct is to let parents make decisions on behalf of their children and to allow for there to be many different sources of educational service provision what would you do well i'm not an expert on this but i think you definitely have to get rid of the funding through property taxes that seems to be a, a recipe for inequality in public education um, I think you probably have to pay teachers more. Um, I think you probably have to revisit the Deweyan model of people sitting in a classroom for eight hours that was, you know, uh, made for the industrial era. Um, I think you have to have all sorts of um, reforms that are basically impossible in, in the present system. Uh, but I with think. charter schools and with independent schools, whether they be parochial or not, with people free to take many different approaches to delivering education to kids, wouldn't there be a greater chance of getting some of the pedagogic reforms that, that you advocate? And if you were to control the delivery of uh, uh, money to support education from the government by channeling it in an equal basis through vouchers or uh, grants to uh, families, you could bypass the property tax system and guarantee an equality of uh, the uh, government support for education, uh, irrespective of the income of the community that the uh, kids' families were living in. So, so I, I, I would actually ask you, has that happened? 
Well, no, it hasn't happened because every uh, <laughs> everybody who wants to do something along the lines that I'm talking about gets opposed by uh, public employee unions who want to maintain the status quo. Um, again, I don't know much about it, but is is it just the public employee unions, or is it because rich people are fixing the system to benefit it's themselves and their the own kids? Yeah. If, if you propose merging, uh, I used to live in Boston. Brookline is a separate town. It's got wonderful schools. Boston Public Schools and Newton is a separate town. It's got wonderful schools. Wellesley is a separate town. It's got wonderful schools. And if you propose merging them all together and busing kids back and forth, everybody would go ballistic. Yeah, shock they, among shocks. <laughs> they'd say we've got a Metco program, which allows a few hundred kids to get bussed out. But if you're trying to take control of my kids' future and uh, put it uh, on the same plane with these kids from the inner city future, I'll fight you to the death. I'm sure. Yeah, and because everyone feels precarious, everyone's worried about proletarianization, and that's a, a function of capitalism. That's a function of, of the system we created where you could fall in class and then lose all of your privileges, ultimately. And that has sort of perverse effects like the one we're talking about. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say about that one, yeah. <laughs> but the world is insecure. You're blaming capitalism for the fact that people... The world could be made less insecure. I, I mean, I, I, I don't think that's an, that's an impossibility. Um, the world doesn't have to be as precarious as the one that we've created, particularly for such a wealthy society like this one. Um, I, where, I think where on earth is this society that you envision actually being uh, uh, enacted? Um, well, <laughs> if I was cheeky, I would say, you know, Cuba, free healthcare. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, that would be cheeky. Yeah, free. Pub <laughs> but but just because I mean, when I, when people ask me that, I'm like, the nation state is barely 350 years old. Let's give it some time before we foreclose all, all forms of possibility here. Um, that's what I say to that. Just because something hasn't necessarily happened in the world doesn't mean that it's impossible. You, you know, the, the public didn't get the vote. We didn't have true democracy in this country until the 1960s. Um, so let, let's give it some time before we foreclose possibilities and make ontological statements about what human beings are, thereby saying that it's essentially impossible to live in a non-precarious society. Okay. Somebody's going to call you a utopian. Well, I mean, what, what's wrong with utopianism? I mean, first of all, the free market's a utopia. Friedrich Hayek was a utopian. If we're talking, Ludwig von Mises is a utopian. The idea that the, 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 the free market's going to you know, work everything out. Utopian thinking is important, at least it's setting out a goal. You, know, it, it's, you might not ever reach that goal, but that but depends on, on uh, it, it, it serves as sort of a north star where you're moving toward. I'm fine with well, utopianism. What my, what my colleague at the Hoover Institution Thomas Sowell would say is that, you know, this is a vision, this is a vision of possibility that fails to come to terms with the tragic reality of limited resources and, uh, and human nature. You would, you would remake, uh, you know, in the spirit of uh, visionary Soviet ideology, you would remake the man and woman, um, and you would repeal the laws, uh, the laws of supply and demand, the laws of, you know, you there's no free lunch at the, you know, the laws of people respond to incentives and so on and so on. I, I would ask professor, professor Sowell, how he's so sure of what human nature is. <laughs> That's a pretty important, the pretty uh, gigantic leap to make that, you know, what human nature is. There's no such thing as Robinson Crusoe. Humans don't exist outside culture. How would you ever determine what capital uh, I is, uh, what human nature capital I is? It's impossible. Propensity it's, it's to truck barter in exchange. This is, you know, Adam Smith and whatnot, but, yeah, I mean, Adam Smith was talking about a theory of moral sentiments, emphasis is theory. As well, as well. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and I, I mean, I just think it's fundamentally, as a historian, like there's no 
humans have propensities, maybe. How the hell would we ever determine what they were? You don't exist outside of culture. And if you did exist outside of culture, that's not natural anyway. So why is that a more real, quote unquote, uh, example of human propensity or human nature? Um, I think Sowell's 91. I think he's like very much like a guy who was educated in the 50s and the 60s, where people were like making huge claims about human nature vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, which I just think are empirically impossible to prove. You, you, you yeah. can't know what human nature is. <laughs> it's impossible. Yeah. I remember some of my best arguments in my book, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality, Harvard University Press 2002, reissued in a new edition with a new preface, 2022. I remember some of the best arguments in that book were very much in the spirit of what you just said, which is we don't exist outside of the flow of history and the web of culture. I was talking about color blindness and racial inequality. And I was saying that the liberal idea, every tub on its own bottom, individuals separate from one another, freedom of you know action uh, and freedom from government coercion rooted in racial identity was an idea when applied to the problem of persisting racial inequality that was divorced from the flow of history. After all, slavery and racial domination at the core of the evolution of the United States and the web of culture, which is that race is not a simply a thing. It's not just simply a natural thing. It's also a social creation. It's a product of our own making and remaking. So I'm not unfamiliar <laughs> with these arguments, but that makes me want to ask you as we kind of wind down here, what your thinking is, we're jumping around a little bit about the uh, affirmative action debate in higher education and more generally about, about meritocracy, about you, 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 this is an empire in decline and China is a, is a uh, nation on the rise. I, I think we ag- agreed to that. Um, and uh, the part of the debate about affirmative action, I hear this from my friends on the right, is that it's a compromise with our meritocratic standards and it's a slide down a slippery slope into a kind of uh, mediocrity. We're unwilling to enforce judgments of quality because of the disparate incidents that such enforcement would have. It will reveal the racial uh, differences in performance that we don't want to confront. And so we are going to scrap the SAT and we're going to get rid of the, uh, you know, hoops that people have to jump through or hurdles that they have to clear uh, on behalf of an egalitarian, uh, racially egalitarian objective. Uh, and, you know, can you speak to 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 this uh, set of debates? It is shocking to me that any professor in the year 2022 would claim that our system is a meritocratic system. Uh, talk about utopianism. Um, there, there seems to be no. Uh, I mean, as someone who's been in the university for basically the the last twenty years, the big difference at, and has taught all over the place. I taught at Columbia. I taught at Cornell. I gave lectures, uh, like at class lectures at Dartmouth when I was a fellow there at Duke, at UW. Uh, do you know what the main difference between those students were between the elite and non-elite? Money. Um, and I think it's very clear that rich people have captured the uh, the the social reproduction, uh, the, the Ivy League and the elite colleges, which essentially serve, as Markovitz said in the book, the meritocracy trap. Kids at of, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale are not any smarter than kids at UVA or uh, UVA, University of West Virginia. Yeah, yeah, uh, University. Yes, I would say they are not any smarter, but they certainly are richer. 
Um, and so I would say that someone once had a phrase like aristocracy was the ideology of feudalism. Meritocracy is the ideology of neoliberalism. I think it serves as a way to justify inequality, like like Markovitz, I think, argued correctly um, in the book, uh, in the meritocracy trap. I think it just doesn't really exist. Uh, I think it, it people are basically born on third base or they're not. And if you're born on third base, if you have rich parents, if you're able to access the the, the tutors, if you're able to go to the feeder schools, if you're able, uh, you're able to get into yeah. Harvard. And I think, uh, Glenn, you might be more familiar immediately with this statistic, but and in like, what is it? More people come from the top ten percent of the income distribution go to Harvard than the bottom ninety percent, or something. Do you think that's all a reflection yeah, of their something increase? Like that is, something like that. True. Something ridiculous, right? So it's like it's so obviously not a functioning system that it's like uh, to me, it's a joke that someone would claim that you know affirmative action is 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 getting in the way of our perfect meritocracy. What are you talking about? And it would so, be more so, serious to address No, the what I'm talking about is somebody got on the combined math and verbal 1,500 out of the 1,600 on the test, and somebody else got 1,100 out of 1,500 on the test. And I think there's a difference between the mental acuity and acquired mastery over intellectual uh, uh, work of those two people. Now, it turns out that if I want to have enough of group X, I'm talking about blacks and Latino, I'm going to have to dip down the scale on the SAT in order to uh, incorporate them into my student body. And I'm going to do that uh, knowing full well that there are differences between individuals. I'm not talking about racial groups as such. And just how prepared they are to take on the very specialized kind of work that you do when you're operating uh, at a high level in, in, a, in an academic environment. And that's what I'm talking about. So th that's not a figment of my imagination. Now, it may be that that disparity that I called attention to is itself a reflection of underlying uh, economic and social inequalities and educational opportunity and the structure of families and uh, what the society is doing in a larger sense. But the, the sheer judgment that if I use different standards to admit kids based on race, I can expect them to perform differently after I admit them. It's not a utopian judgment in my view. I think it's a fair empirically demonstrated of the evidence. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's actually a left case for keeping the SAT because, you know, scoring well on that is one of the only ways that one would be able to, to overcome oneself. that class advantage. That yeah, to overcome that class advantage. Right. And there's a, I think um, Freddie DeBoer. I don't know if you know Freddie DeBoer, but he's one. He's I know one the name. Yeah, he's one who's been advocating that position. So uh, to me, honestly, like I'm a bit agnostic on that because to, to me, it's like a super structural problem almost. Right. The problem is that we have eight institutions that produce the entire elite and everyone who's rich is able to go to these institutions and most people who are not rich are not able to go to these institutions. So when you're arguing at that level, I think to me you're ignoring which is the real problem, which again is this sort of cloistering of an basically oligarchic aristocratic elite in a series of institutions. And that's the problem that we really need to be addressing, which is which is again caused by capitalism, because uh, you have to go to these to maintain your class position in the society. You have to go to a Harvard, you have to go to a Columbia, or really you have to go to a top forty research one a university, you know, to expand beyond the Ivy League. And that's the problem. Um, the problem is that you need to go to these schools to maintain your class position. When we're talking about um, you know affirmative action and getting rid of the SAT or not getting rid of the SAT, it, it's it's, to me, sort of an elision 
of what I find to be the major issue here, which is a cloistered elite aren't gathering us, at institutions. Aren't all of we um, academic specialists, elitist of a sort? I mean, wouldn't we uh, be pissed off if publishing houses just decided to publish manuscripts at random rather than vetting them? Or if academic journals just decided to publish articles based on criteria other than the rarefied assessments of expert practitioners of the craft, whether it be history, economics, uh, theoretical physics, or whatever. Sure. Don't we yeah. think that some schools are, quote, better than others based upon, well, I read the books, I saw the research program, I know the graduate students, and the one coming from this department are better than the ones coming from that department? Well, I, I don't agree with that at all. I mean, I think, like, given the oh, state really? of the academic job market, at this point, it's random. You know, like the, the the random person who gets the Harvard job is not appreciably different from the random person who gets the West Virginia University job. The academic job market is so bad that I don't think you can but make those fine distinctions. It's you don't think Harvard and West Virginia's history departments can be compared effectively as one is stronger or better, quote unquote, than the other? So when we're let's say we're talking about history, like even when I compare myself to someone at Columbia, they get so much more money than I do. Uh, at UW to pay research assistants to go to archival trips to get time off, you know, to get sabbatical years. Uh, it's it's impossible to divorce from that, you know. Like my my friends at Dartmouth, they they teach. I don't I don't, I don't not Dartmouth. I don't I don't know specifics there, but like they teach for three years, they get a year off. I don't get that. I, I get after seven years, I get like a part time off. Uh, so like maybe they're able to produce more, but because they have the resources to produce more. So no, I actually don't think you are able to make those distinctions so easily. I, I don't think you can, um, frankly. No, I, I disagree with yeah, that. Yeah, we couldn't disagree more strongly about that, although I don't know your field. Uh, in, in my field, I think I really do know the difference between people who are, you know, in that select group of uh, truly extraordinary contributors but Glenn, I have a question are, yeah. uh, for, for that. Um, so let's say like you're able to tell the difference, but there are so many value judgments in that. If someone was doing economic history of a qualitative sort, they could basically sure. never get hired at a Harvard, right? Essentially, I, I, right? You have well, to have a form of yeah. mathematical sophistication, which That's I would true. say fetish, fetishization of, of quantitative knowledge. Um, and so the, the, all those things, you know, I, I don't think you can make that objective distinction. Maybe you can make it in 150 years. You know, when when time has passed, but I promise you a lot of really famous professors who are really super famous in the 20s and the 30s, no one's ever heard of because their work hasn't stood the test of time. Uh, and so no. I think also I'm informed as someone who studies the history of universities and like people who are the biggest names of all time. No one remembers them. Who knows who E.R.A. Seligman is? You know, this guy was the biggest guy on Earth for 20 years uh, in, in the in the 20s and the 30s. So uh, I, I don't think you're able to make that judgment personally. That might be because of uh, my historical bias. No, no, I, I, I'm going to grant the point that there are, um, uh, I don't know what, aesthetic judgments or fads that, that affect uh, disciplines and they come and they go and people who are thought to be great and uh, at one point in time may in retrospect not look so so good. And I grant the point that within economics, we have a particular way of construing what we take to be serious research that relies heavily upon quantification and uh, mathematically assisted an analysis and so on. And one could question, and many have done, uh, whether or not that's the only way of trying to, to do economics. And it really gets down to 
what's economics, what's sociology, what's history, and the disciplines draw their boundaries. Well, well, I think it gets down to who funds what at the university in the 1950s. You know, that, that's what it gets down to. Why did economics take a quantified term? Why did political science take a quantified term? Because during the early Cold War, people wanted like certain knowledge. Uh, and so they funded these departments, they funded particular approaches, and they didn't fund others. Basically because some rich philanthropists in the 40s and the 50s decided, A, now we have to say it as the gospel truth. And I think this is what history is useful. You could actually denaturalize no, no, I, things. I, I, think you, I think you're giving short shrift to the power and the beauty of certain ideas. Maybe ideas that can't be appreciated unless you're an insider. <coughs> so, I mean, I give one example. Kenneth Arrow, he's late. He's dead. Now he died a couple of years ago. He's a great man. One of the great economists of the 20th century. So he did a lot of stuff. One of them was this book, Social Choice and Individual Values, which was a piece of philosophy and mathematically assisted uh, political theory that was just a, you know, just a beautiful idea. And, you know, I think for Neumann and uh, uh, Morgan, Morgan Stern, Stern. Game theory. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I'm going to funded by the Rand theory. Corporation. <laughs> no, I know. Uh, but the <laughs> ideas, they, I, I mean, this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to separate your what I would call reductive arguments <laughs> based on they funded. They had some interest, therefore, from the fact that the ideas have an independent uh, existence. I mean, it would be almost like trying to explain modern jazz by reference to who owned the nightclubs. I think music is a different form of expression. Um, and one, you could make arguments about that. But I would just point people to Paul Erickson's book, The World the Game Theorists Made, which really goes deep into why game theory, as opposed to other approaches, was funded and supported by particular institutions in the 40s and the 50s. And I think there's some truth to sort of the separate ideas existing out in a space. Um, but I, I, I would suggest that it is um, the, the reason that these things dominated was not necessarily the beauty of the, the ideas, but because they had particular types of support in a particular uh, political, economic, and institutional uh, structure. Even though the ideas do matter, um, but well, you know, game theory, for example, it's everywhere in uh, economics because it deals with the interaction of small numbers of people who have their respective interest and in information, and it tries to resolve how it is that when they do interact with each other, you can predict what the outcomes will be. It's extending the framework from the atomistic market of competitive price takers to a world in which you can envision giving an account of how negotiations will take place and bargaining between people and how conflict resolution and so on might, you know, and including, uh, yes, yes, including mutually assured destruction. <laughs> Shelling, yeah. <laughs> Which is a, it's a political phenomenon, but the, but the analyst, the analysis of it is, is a universal intellectual problem. It, it's quite independent of what the interest of the people who posed the problem might have been. So I think I would probably disagree with that. So if you, I mean, I, I think I'm very much influenced by the historical literature. Or the, I also should mention the work of S.M. Amadei, who, who wrote a book called Rationalizing Capitalist Democracy, which really goes into why game theory was funded and supported in the 40s and the 50s. Um, even when you take like a game theoretic like uh, exchange, right? That often assumes like what a, a um, I, I hate to do this because I feel it's a little cheap, but it's true. Like a white man in the 1950s assumed 
should be uh, like uh, people assume the way people interacted in the world, right? You can imagine, you know, a, a, a woman with a different set of social assumptions about what would lead to a greater good might not necessarily develop a system based on mutual antagonistic exchange or, or you know, where you could come together in the prisoner's dilemma. I, I wish I could remember the essay. But what but I like, can't imagine is Google, Microsoft, and Facebook interacting with each other in the new tech space without reference to the fact that each one is trying to get as big a market share and secure as much profit as they want. And that's the arena, that kind of arena, an antitrust law or understanding uh, competition between large corporations and things of this kind that but, I see game theory is applying to. And I can't imagine that whether it was a man or a woman or a white or a gay could matter a whit if I were trying to predict what Google, Microsoft, Facebook, et cetera, are going to do. So I think that's a perfect example. So uh, I think for that, you'd have to know who Mark Zuckerberg is, right? And Mark Zuckerberg, who just lost, what, $500 billion making a wacky bet on Meta? You know, uh, is that something that game theory could express without knowing who the hell Mark Zuckerberg is? I, I don't think he would have made that choice, you know, if you're examining it as some sort of disembodied monad. So again, that's a perfect example for just showing how you actually need history. You actually need the qualitative knowledge if you're applying it to the world. Now, that's not as elegant. I'm not trying to get rid of history. You're the one who's trying to get rid of game theory. <laughs> no, no, I think it's a useful tool. I think it's a useful tool. I think the problem okay, is cool. that it's become, it's become the tool or the way, right? I think it's okay, an incredibly a useful argument. tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not getting rid of it. All of these things are incredibly useful tools. System analysis, game theory, Monte Carlo methods. So you want to use it. The problem is the fetishization of it as the way of knowing. The problem is that, what, Berkeley is the only program to teach an economic history course? That's the problem. Uh, not, not the tools in and of themselves. It's, as a, it's, the social, um, it's the social function or the social position that the tool yeah. has accrued. That's I agree issue. with you. They don't teach the history of economic thought either. They don't read uh, Smith and Ricardo and Mill and Marx and Keynes. In I was the just original. reading Walrus... I was just reading Walrus and Marshall this past week, and they're like, Volra is what we say, Volra. Uh, Vol Volra, sorry, Volra. <laughs> People always mispronounce Weber as Weber, and I always uh, correct them. Or Von, von Mises at Von Mises. Volra. Um, but he, these guys are like, whoa, be careful what you apply economics to. That's like one of their biggest messages. They're like, this is very useful for certain types of exchange, but don't make it like the way you view the world, the prison through which when, you view the world. When I was world. in graduate school nearly a half century ago, they still taught us about Vara and, and Leon and uh, uh, Pareto and, and uh, these people. And they still had a sense of the interaction between philosophy, history, economics, politics, even though the quantification was well advanced. But there was a, a kind of memory. I was taught by people like Paul Samuelson who himself an embodiment of mathematical, uh, ex, uh, uh, applied mathematical uh, uh, specialization, but he had a long, wide view of, of the discipline. And we taught economic history, too. We, we were taught the application of economic methods to trying to, you know, the, I don't know what you think about it, um, uh, Time on the Cross, uh, the, the book about slavery, uh, uh, Fogel and Ingerman, Robert Fogel, who in, ended up with a Nobel uh, recognition for his contributions to the quantitative economic history, Cleometrics, they called it at the time, Cleometrics, uh, the god of history put to, uh, to, Metrics. to the mathematical <laughs> test. But that has changed. That was at Rochester, right? Ingerman was at Rochester. Uh, 
I believe so. Uh, and Rochester is a very quant department. Yeah, he was in Rochester before moving to yeah. Chicago. Fogel. Yeah, his uh, and, yeah, and uh, Ingerman Inger- was also at uh, at Rochester. His son's a big historian at Yale, David Engerman now. Ah. Uh, yeah, very big historian of, of diplomatic history. But no, yeah, I mean, I, I think those are all useful tools, Abs- absolutely, and, and they should never be discarded. The problem is that in our particular historical moment, they're emphasized at the expense of other equally valuable, um, I would even say when you're talking about politics, probably more valuable approaches to understanding the world. Okay, let's conclude, Daniel. This is Daniel Bessner <laughs> I'm with here. He's a man of the left, and he's also a historian, and he's very jealously protective of the prerogatives of his discipline, and he's very <laughs> skeptical about some of the foundations of my own, and that's what makes the world go round. So we'll talk again, Daniel. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Glenn. Really appreciate it.